Christians are a peculiar people. To the world around us, we often appear as strange or weird, like we really don't fit in. The phrase the Apostle Peter used to describe us was elect exiles. The idea is that even though we are chosen and precious to God, in a world that's corrupted by sin, we will feel like strangers or sojourners. As the song says, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. So Christians are called to live like foreigners and exiles while still pursuing relationships with the people around us who are not like us. And Peter's first letter is written to help saints, young and old, to figure out how to do that, how to live in the world while not becoming like the world, while also seeking to win the world back to God. The following episode is one of nine where we dove into this letter with fellow saints and seekers here in Brooklyn to try and figure out how do we share the gospel with our neighbors around us when the gospel feels like it's mostly unwelcome. Hope you benefit from listening. Peace and love, everybody. First Peter chapter three, and we're going to start in verse eight tonight. Before we really get the ball rolling, though, Mark, do you mind go ahead and praying for us before we get going here? Absolutely. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us together on this beautiful evening. Thank you for a wonderful service earlier today and for the honor to gather in your name and to uplift your name, to give you all the praise, the glory, and the honor, and to learn more about your word as we go out each and every day, each and every moment, living according to your word, according to your standards, and according to your grace and mercy, Lord Jesus. We thank you for the study that we're about to have. We ask you to impart wisdom and light and discernment upon our fellow servant and your humble servant, Ben, as he leads us through this class and discussion. And as we just learn more about your word and as we just equip and encourage each other, as you ultimately equip and encourage us to study your word and to just learn more about you each and every moment, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this time together. We pray that it's a fruitful discussion, a fruitful journey through uh, the book of First Peter. And we just thank you for everything that you continue to do in our lives, Lord Jesus, individually and as a community and as a church family. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this time together in your holy, precious name. Amen. 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 All right, so just a little step back before we get into our text here in the middle of chapter 3. Uh, I'm going to lay out some stuff, and then I'm just going to ask for some feedback from you guys as far as some perspective and uh, kind of your opinion of some things that you've been noticing from our studies the past few weeks that Cale uh, has been leading us in. Peter said at the end of this letter that he wrote about the true grace of God, that we should stand firm in it. This is a letter about grace. And yet over the past couple of weeks, most of what we've been talking about is subjection, is not opposed to grace. As a matter of fact, it's a way that we tap into the grace of God. It's one of the ways that God's grace expresses itself in our lives. It just means we usually don't think about grace in the fullest way or the, all the ways that God wants us to. Uh, but notice how in the past few weeks we've, we've uh, seen, if I'm just backing up from where we are tonight, going backwards. In chapter 3, verse 1 and in verse 5, speaks about the submission and subjection, particularly of wives, to a degree, husbands themselves, not the same word that's used, but it's the same idea that uh, husbands are going to have to subject their wills and their wishes to the needs of their wife, just like wives are going to submit their will to their husbands. Uh, if you back up into chapter 2 and verse 18, servants be subject to your masters. Back up again to chapter 2 and uh, verse 13. Be subject to the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be an emperor as supreme or governors, blah, 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 going about 
uh, government. So we've been seeing a lot of, a lot of uh, arenas of life where we have to learn to be subject and subject ourselves to someone, uh, someone else. So I just wanted to kind of open the floor. Um, what, what have been some of y'all's thoughts about subjection, the beauty of it, the difficulties of it, the uh, complications of it, the benefits of it, um, whatever. Uh, what, what have you thought about, as, you know, whether that's on a practical level or on a, on a spiritual level, looking inside your own heart or looking at your relationship with God, as we've no, uh, talked about this notion of subjection and submission what have you kind of gathered from those discussions the past couple of weeks? If we truly subject ourselves to someone else, if we submit to someone, it diminishes our sense of pride. It makes us more humble. Okay, great, great. Other thoughts on these discussions the past couple of weeks on the notion of subjection or submission in our relationships to others? Um, I think for me, uh, learning about subjection is um, the more we subject ourselves to, uh, I guess, our masters, our husbands, we're truly just subjecting ourselves to God. Um, and, you know, that's the higher calling is that, you know, following God in this is just our honor to him and uh, to walk in that priestly mindset that, you know, we're called in the beginning part of First Peter is just to submit to God, you know, above all things. I love that. And, 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 and really, Denise, uh, your comment dovetails with Marx. You know, Marx, hey, subjection teaches a humility. Well, that humility is critical if we're going to have a proper relationship with God and if we're going to carry out his purposes in the world. From chapter 2 and verse 9, which I think is one of the passages that Denise will be referring to, we're a chosen race. We're a, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and we're called to, to exalt God in the world. And so all these relationships with me think it's not very fair to be subject to that person. They're not any better than me. And they're not. That's not Peter's argument at all. The argument is, is good practice to help you be subject to God, to Denise's point. I love that. Uh, other observations, other comments. Uh, go ahead, Mike and Candace. Yeah, one thing that um, just because you're subject to someone does not necessarily mean that you're inferior to them. Um, regardless of your position, God has a role for you to fulfill. And that's that's very crucial in the grand scheme of things. Great point. One of the most obvious ones of that is, is in marriage, right? Wives are given the, the greater burden, I think we can say, of subjection based on the instructions that are given, um, at least in that particular aspect of subjection. Yeah, it's pretty clear in the text. He's speaking to wives who are part of the royal priesthood who are living with their husbands who apparently are not based on this context in particular, uh, that's not always the case, of course. The idea will be a man and uh, husband and wife both being Christian. But here's the point. For sure, if you're one of God's special people, you're not inferior to anybody. It's, uh, so uh, just to, to support Mike's point there, I love that. I think it's so important. The subjection is a choice we make out of devotion to God, not as some sort of statement about our intrinsic worth or someone else's intrinsic worth. So this may be a, a, a little bit tangential, but I think actually a uh, comment that Mike made um, you know, it's a pretty good setup for this. Who are the people that we're most disinterested in subjecting ourselves to? Who are the people that we say submit to them? I don't think so. There's a lot of answers to this. 
uh, and I'm not saying that you would in your, in your, your godly mind and your godly heart, you'd think this, but in that flesh mind and that flesh heart, that kind of instant reaction to the, the instruction to submit or be subject to, and I'm not talking about specific names, by the way, please don't name names. That's not the point here. I'm just saying, what are the types of people or the types of relationships or the types of situations that we're like, uh, 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 I don't, I don't need to subject myself to them. I don't want to submit to them. I'm not interested in that. I think any, any person in authority who is bad or who, who is just not godly, right? So bad government, bad husband, bad master, meaning bad boss. Like, I mean, it's just the calling of Christ calls us so much higher, right? Because we have to subject ourselves to people who are not looking out for our best interest. And so it's just so hard to do. For sure. For sure. Really good. What other categories of people um, do we look at as like, I'm not interested in that to be subject? Dominique? I'd say any authority figure who has a ginormous ego or who belittles you or also who just doesn't really care about other people. Sure. Yep, absolutely. Other thoughts about the types of people or the types of relationships that are challenging for us to subject ourselves to someone else? I think of somebody who we're familiar with who can be rude or obnoxious, whether it's a coworker, even a friend or an acquaintance, someone who we just, just, we just can't see ourselves getting along with that person because they're so rude and obnoxious. Yeah, so you bring up something interesting, Mark. You're talking about people who aren't necessarily authority figures in our lives that subjecting ourselves to them can be pretty challenging. Yeah, I think that's true. That's true. Denise. Um, I guess, uh, God, sometimes it's very hard to subject ourselves to God. Um, you know, cause a lot of times when we read things in the scripture that God is asking us to submit to, it's just very hard. And, you know, the reality of our flesh is, to resist or to rebel. Um, and that becomes like a battle. I think, um, like Paul spoke about like the spirit versus the flesh, you know? So I, I would say, uh, God would probably be the hardest. I think so. I have no scripture to back this up. This is my theory, but I bet you if any of us, if God was like, Hey, talk to me, what, what, what instructions are you like? Not kind of a big fan of what kind of stuff you think I should reconsider? And if we were to say, Lord, all this stuff about subjection, honestly, like to government, to our bosses, spouse, all this stuff, it's just a lot of subjection talk. I kind of wonder if God would say, well, listen, if y'all would be subject to me better, then I wouldn't have had to give you all those instructions. But honestly, y'all are super bad at subjection to me. So I had to give you lots and lots of practice so that you could learn this kind of spirit of humility. I think you're exactly right, Denise. It's super hard. That's the hardest for us is to be subject to God. And that's why all these instructions have been given. Brian, what's your thought? Um, I came in a little late. Was it where? Was there a reading? Was there part of the reading that said to subject ourselves to uh, to those in the world? No, not really. We haven't. We have, there's something that maybe is um, to the side of that, but we haven't we haven't got that yet. Honestly, we're doing a little discussion before we get into the reading tonight, anyway. So we haven't read it all. Yeah, I think um, you know we want to serve others. Uh, and sometimes I, I think it's, it's serving people in the world is, is uh, 
is good. Um, and like you said, not necessarily when they're – like Mark said, not necessarily when they're in authority. But it certainly is hard to um, serve, you know, friends, maybe longtime friends who a lot of t- you had a lot of kind of unsaid agreements with, like, hey, you know, you, you call, the friend calls, you call back, you guys go out, you do, you know. Um, those are not really authorities, but it's kind of like you're submitting to certain things. Um, with people who just are not believers at all, it might actually be even worse. Um, or people like, I'm not sure, I guess you could, you know, sometimes get, you know, caught up in a situation where you might be with some unbelievers and, uh, you know, someone like in a group or something, I don't know, you could be like camping or something, right? <laughs> and someone in the, in the group like takes the lead and like starts telling people what to do. And, and you're just kind of like, uh, man, I, just, I can't listen to this guy, you know? Right, right. That can be tough. And, and, and what a couple of uh, the, the thoughts that are being brought here that I think are useful and actually a good springboard into the first part of our reading tonight. Um, actually submitting to people who are our peers in every way. Like they have no, like technically your boss or the government, they have some sort of like, hey, you know, I'm the government or hey, I'm, you know, your boss, whatever. Um, they have a little something, even though it's not their intrinsic worth as a human being, but they have like a positional reason for you to subject yourself to them. But man, it's whenever we run into friends and coworkers and neighbors, family members, it's whenever we run into each other as brethren, that subjection can get really tough. It's in this context that uh, our reading um, uh, carries on, really. And I think it's important. In verse 8 of, of uh, 1 Peter 3, he begins with the word, finally. And that's because he's had this series of instructions. If you wanted to back it up, I think you could start in chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions which wage war against your soul and keep your conduct among the people of the nations honorable so that they would see your good deeds. And even though they may revile you as evildoers for a little while, they'll come to glorify God in the day of visitation. Uh, okay. What do you mean? How do we fight this fight? How do we, you know, war against these passions and do good? Well, be subject to the governing authorities, be subject to your masters, be subject um, to your husband, if you're a wife, and if you're a husband, you're not off the hook either. You be understanding of your wife, and in that way, to an extent, subject your um, your your whims and wishes to her needs. Okay, well, then he says, finally, I think the idea is there's kind of this successive um, uh, list of instructions. Finally, and I want to read verses eight through twelve. I want you to listen to this list and notice the ways that we are to subject ourselves, to subject our will, to subject our passions for others, for those who are our peers, maybe in the world, especially those, though, uh, in the body of Christ. Let's read verses 8 through 12, and I want to just discuss which of these expressions of subjection or these kinds of characteristics that are necessary for our subjection, our mutual subjection to each other as human beings and especially as saints. Which one of these things do you find most challenging? 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
let me pop this up here on the screen just to make it a little easier. You may want to add to this, but this was this is um, a list of the, the instructions that he gives as we submit or subject ourselves together. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, having a tender heart, having a humble mind, not repaying evil for evil, not reviling when other people revile us, that is to say something hateful or mean to us. Uh, we should keep our lips away from deceit and speak the truth only. We should do good. We're going to come back to that idea of goodness here later in the reading and uh, seek peace and pursue it. There's probably some other instructions you might find in the text here, but this is at least a, a kind of quick bulleted list of the instructions of uh, what kind of character we're supposed to have and how we subject ourselves in our peer relationships. Again, either I think this would apply to just people at coworkers, friends, neighbors, family members outside of Christ, but then especially those, uh, those of us in Christ. So which of these do you find most challenging personally? And uh, what makes it challenging? What do you see in this list of exhortations that Peter gives of the kind of character that's required for us to be subject together and submissive together? Which one of these do you find most challenging? For you, by the way, it would be better if we didn't do, you know, I know a lot of people who have a challenge with blah, blah, blah. Yeah, we know. We know lots of people have challenges with all these, but what about you? What do you find challenging about this list of exhortations and, uh, and what makes it challenging for you? So we were just over here looking up uh, the meaning, the exact meaning of reviling, because I mean, we have a concept of what it was, but I wanted the exact meaning. And it means like, what is it? Being subject to verbal abuse. And I mean, let's be honest, like for me, in fact, you just said talk about me. So for me personally, that is that it's difficult, right? I mean, I've had, I remember one time just on the subway and some guy like pushed me out of the way to get in the train like, you know, angrily, you know, I, I've even had people quarrel at me. It's very difficult oh, yeah. to, you know, subject yourself in those moments because your natural instinct, it feels like, is you want to lash out. You want to respond. So that's very difficult for me. For sure. For sure. And some of us know that we're good at it. And so, like, it's really hard to resist that temptation um, to not revile in return. Keep going. What other things in this list do you guys see that it's like, wow, that's really a hard one for me? I think just kind of globally with the whole list, it's, it's this recognition that, you know, it's not our job to seek justice for the injustices that have been, you know, sent our way, I guess is, is maybe the best way to say it. Um, but like, it's, it's, that's, I just find that really challenging because I want, I've had the feeling of like, I want to make it right. Whether it's um, what was just said about like reviling against somebody or, you know, <laughs> getting someone back, I think is almost a natural instinct. And I, I just find the whole, whole list in that sense of not being the person who levels justice really challenging. Amen. Amen. You know, uh, uh, Brittany, and really Candace, you as well, uh, the uh, question number four that Caleb sent us said, uh, Peter says not to repay evil or reviling, to turn away from evil and do good, to keep your tongue from evil and deceit. These commands are not easy to obey. 
what reminders does Peter give in this paragraph that would encourage saints who are suffering to obey these difficult commands? Y'all hold on to that question because I want us to come back to that in just a minute. But we're going to keep talking about this. Which do you find challenging? What makes it challenging? But this question Caleb asked us in the homework material is really valuable because it helps us think, okay, this is what I find challenging. What does he say here, though, that will help me to overcome the challenge? So we'll, we'll not, let's not do that yet. But keep that in mind while we're talking. So somebody else, um, what, what do you find? Which of these do you find most challenging personally? I'm going to read Mark's comment. Mark, if you want to jump in and add on, uh, feel free. Mark says, for myself, maintaining a humble mind has been a challenge. I've been meditating and attempting to practice humility these past few weeks. And remaining humble with my own mind can be a challenging task. Mark, you want to add on to anything on that, brother? I think that's a great comment. I think uh, that's something that resonates with me. I know I'm sure everybody. But you got anything you want to add here? I think sometimes, especially when we least expect it, we'll have these thoughts about ourselves of other people and they're far from humble thoughts i'll put it that way whether we're reflecting upon ourselves or our relationships with other people or other people themselves their personalities so we just need to remain humble in our own mind and that just puts on another dimension adds another dimension if you will to the old idea of humility and humbleness amen Amen. A lot of times, or many times, I should say, it starts in the mind and the emotions, and then it just manifests itself in the physical realm. Well said. Okay. Yeah, um, just thinking about being humble, I think I'll go with that one, the same one that Brother Mark got it. Um, you know, it's just being a humble person. Uh, it never been easy, right? Uh, because many times being rejected, or being uh, made fun or many other things that happen, it just offends me because sometimes because um, I'm so proud, you know. Mm-hmm. But if I was a hum- humble person, you know, I, if I have a humble mind, uh, I shouldn't be concerned about that. It wouldn't have offended me never. And uh, I think that would be my, my biggest concern and it's something I've been working on. Amen. Amen. Uh, any others you guys want to share? Brian? Yeah. Can you put that screen up for a second, Ben? Oh, sure. Um, yeah. So they're all hard um, as, uh, you know, living in, in the world, um, living in work and, and dealing with people who, who aren't thinking as much about these things um, necessarily, you know. But I think the hardest for me is actually tender heart because all the other ones, you can kind of catch yourself and then the other ones involve like kind of action, you know, not that I'm great at the other ones, but you know, if you, uh, if you look at someone, you don't have sympathy, you can say, all right, you know, I need to, all right, I need to have more sympathy for them. Um, and it's not that I'm terrible at all these things. I do have sympathy for people. I try to speak truth a lot. Um, I'm trying to do good. I try to speak peace. But tender heart for me, um, it's like an instinct, you know. I think um, I have, I'm, I'm not always, I mean, I can be very tender hearted, but I'm not always. And um, a lot of times I can hear something, someone can say something, I can see something, you know, especially if I'm stressed or something. And my heart is not tender towards that person's plight. You know, that person might be complaining or that person might be, you know, on the news and saying stuff and I I don't have that tender forgiving heart or the tender sympathetic heart and it's an instinct you know and I I feel it and sometimes I I don't even think about it I say man that dude is 
you know, he, he's awful, you know, and, uh, but it's not till later, maybe a lot of times until after I'm spent time in the word that I realized, you know, all us humans really, um, are all in this together. We all have these problems. Everyone has different kinds of problems. And granted, I think coming to the Lord, you are helped so much, or we are helped. We know that, but, um, we have to have sympathy for other people. And so we have to kind of nurture that tender heart. And I think that's the, might be the hardest thing because it's a, it's an instinct that you can kind of hide, you know, um, you can't really hide if you're not humble people kind of notice, you know, if you say through it, but with a tender heart, you can keep that hidden. So it's, it's something um, I have to work on. Amen. Yeah. yeah. One thing I would say I have difficulty with is the first one on the list, unity of mind. Because if you look at the list, everything except that one is just dependent on the individual alone. Unity of mind it depends on what other people are thinking, what other people are engaged in, right? And one of my flaws, one of my many flaws, is I could be very stubborn, I could be very opinionated about things, and immovable. So for me to be called to have unity of mind, that is challenging. So again, this is something that, yes, I have to change my thinking change my concepts of certain things to conform to what whatever group I'm with is, is thinking. Uh, that's a great call. I mean, it, so other translations have the word harmonious here. It's hard for some of us. Some of us just like to sing solos, you know, and it's hard to get down with the idea that I've got to figure out how to be harmonious with others. And of course, that doesn't mean we're compromising what's true and right. We can see that from the back end of the list, but you're so right. It's, it's a real challenge to say, I got I got to get down with everybody else and, uh, and learn to be of the same mind with others. All right, good. Um, something I want to add on and, and say some more things about just some, um, you know, just some personal reflections here, but why don't we pivot to this other question? Caleb drops it in the chat. Again, this is question four from your homework. So I know you spent some time thinking about this already. Um, what reminders does Peter give in this paragraph, in verses 8 through 12? What do you see in verses 8 through 12 that actually help us? I mean, we can see, we can see our shortcomings. We can see the challenges of some of these things. But what do you see that Peter says that helps us to be able to move forward and to actually accomplish these things and to develop the character that allow us to have the subjection that will glorify God in the world? Uh, Brittany. Sorry, I didn't mean to go off mute. <laughs> well, you can, you can say something if you want, but you don't have to if you don't want to. I'm going to pass. All right, that's fine. Somebody else jump in here. What do y'all think? What are, what are some things here um, that, we, that you can see in verses 8 through 12 that actually help us? Say, okay, this is hard, and I, I have a weakness here. I have a bunch of weaknesses here. I have a couple in particular. But here's this thing in, in this text that Peter's pointing us toward that will help me to overcome or help me to grow, help me to be better in this way. Mark, go ahead. And there's an encouragement, in, oh, I'm sorry, there's an encouragement in verse 10, where it says, the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil. So in other words, if you refrain from doing evil things, such as speaking in an evil manner or putting people down, you will have a wonderful life, so to speak. You'll desire life, love, you'll see good days. 
you know, a lot of the problem that for, for a lot of us, is we just don't believe it's actually good to be humble in mind or to show brotherly love or to be, you know, harmonious with uh, brethren or to, to not revile. We think it's a good thing to fight back, fight fire with fire, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So I think that's a great one. Verse 10 is a great one. You need to start, we need to start with believing this is actually good. This is the way to have a good life is to have this kind of character, to be in subjection. Keep on going. What else do you see in verses 8 through 12 that help us? Uh, Mike and Candace. I think, well, that entire quote is from Psalms, I guess. Um, I guess it says, you know, refrain this tongue from evil. Um, don't speak deceit. Seek peace and pursue it. To me, that's, that's a big one, you know, because a lot of times we're not necessarily actively seeking peace, mm -hmm. especially if we're kind of morally against, I mean, not more, well, if we're against somebody or we don't necessarily get along with someone, then our inclination is not to seek peace and pursue it. Amen. Amen. Okay, I want to come to Brian in just a second, but I just want to add on, Candace did point out correctly that this is from Psalm 34, which of course Caleb spoke to us about that this morning in the sermon. There's actually, I think, uh, two implicit things that we learn here is if we want to develop this uh, character, we need to turn to the scriptures. It's interesting, this passage and Romans chapter 15 point out that the key to having the kind of character where we'll subject ourselves to one another and have a oneness, a unity, is the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. We need to be reading the scriptures. Specifically, I might add, we should be reading uh, stories that instruct us. Psalm 34 is a psalm that David wrote. I think Brian mentioned this before the reading, um, before the sermon this morning in worship. But Psalm 34 uh, was kind of a, a song sermon that David wrote after some experiences, some failures, frankly, in his own life. Well, so that means reading not only Psalm 34, but reading the life of David and learning from those stories and learning from the scriptures is really important if we want to um, cultivate the kind of character that will allow us to be subject as God would have us to. Brian, go ahead. Oh, um, I was just going to say um, the way he brings in the quote there in um, verse 10 is really encouraging instead of just telling us the commands it's encouraging because he threw that line at the beginning is whoever desires to love life and see good days so there's an there's an extra encouragement that not just do this but also you know this is going to give you um you're going to love life through doing these things um so so it gives you more encouragement to do those hard things because it's not just that you're being a good christian you're obeying but you're you're going to love life and see good days through these things and you shouldn't be doing it for self-interest, but, you know, that is an encouragement. And it's okay for us to, to obey God for the good things, which we've learned. Um, so I've always liked that, that part of it. And um, the one, I guess the one part that wasn't mentioned was uh, uh, keep your lips from speaking deceit. Um, and again, with these, these um, encouraging words to help us fulfill those commandments, in eight through 10, they're very concrete, you know? So it's like, keep your tongue from evil. Don't you have your lips speak deceit. So it's something you can really, you know, turn, turn away from evil, do good. Um, so it helps you to have those other things. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Hey Ben. Yeah, Richard, please. Uh, I had a thought um, in these verses. Um, these are also all qualities that when I think about um, the teachings of Christ also being a rabbi, a teacher himself, and a master, 
that we call master, you know, these qualities are things you have to work at. The, these are all things you have to aspire to that God always asks us to. A lot of the things that are difficult, you have to work hard at to train yourself to how to aspire to something higher that's more godly. And it gives you something to aim for because man without God is primitive. They're almost animals. We, we are primal without God. And, and having God interact with us and saying how, acknowledging that we are a part of him and we are made in his image, it's saying, and now that you know that we're related, you need to aspire to me. You're going to have to work on these qualities. You know, and in martial arts, uh, I'll throw it to that with, again, with Jesus being the master, um, even with samurai, when you followed a samurai master, they said you followed his way, which we know Jesus is the way. Mm -hmm. um, when you follow a master and, you're, and you are an apprentice, you are following his way. And us as followers of Christ, we, we are apprentices that are learning the way. And you have to, having, and he showed us ultimately what having power, but with restraint. You know, being humble when you have the, you could easily brag about something. He showed us all these things. And I think he, uh, these passages remind us, like, you have to work towards these things and you have to aspire to these things. Because the other things are knee-jerk reactions, like, like repaying evil with evil, insults for insults. Those are, those are knee-jerk reactions. Lying, stealing. You don't really have to work at, at trying to do those things. It's almost for us, uh, unfortunately, the, the, the not better quality sides of, of humanity are those things. You have to work hard at, at these qualities. But, it's a, but it, it brings you to a higher place. It brings you closer to God. Love that. And Richard, uh, our mind is, is running on the same track because I, I wanted to point something out to y'all. One time, I remember it was, it was years ago, we were reading First Peter. And, uh, and, and this, is, this is one of those, you need to read a paper Bible more. If you guys don't read from a paper Bible, you need to get on that because you miss out on things like what I'm about to show you. I'm reading it and I'm just looking at the text and then I'm noticing the column on the opposite side of the page. And I'm like, wait a second, check this out right here. You know, some of y'all noticed whenever I was cataloging all the subjection instructions or submission instructions that I skipped over the most important part of this old text, which is verses 21 through 25, speaking about Christ. And Richard's point here that, that really our subjection and our submission, I love that point. This is something we've got to aspire to. It's something we got to work at harder than even a samurai. I mean, this is religious samurai school we're in. But really what we're doing is we're trying to be like Jesus. And I want you to notice so many phrases that Peter parallels in verses 21 through 25 of chapter 2, which is where he summarizes Jesus' character. Actually, I've only got 21 to 24 here. I'm sorry, that's a typo. Um, and how similar it is to this text as he kind of summarizes the kind of character that's going to enable us to be subject to one another in the body of Christ, out in the world, in marriage, in the workplace, in uh, society and government, all these things. He's saying just, hey, I want you to be like Jesus. That's what it's about. 1 Peter 2, verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered. Chapter 3 and verse 9, do not return to evil for evil for reviling for but on the contrary, bless for to this you have been called. Same phrase. Check out this next one here, a uh, really similar phrase. Verse 22, speaking about Christ said, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Look at the instruction for us in chapter 3 and verses 10 and 11. If we want to desire to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. 
And it's the same thing. Basically, he's just saying, do like Jesus did. Look at another one here. Verse First uh, Peter 2, 23 says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. We've already discussed this, but the instruction to us in 1 Peter 3, 9 is, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. And then how about this one? Jesus, it said in verse, uh, 1 Peter 2, 23, continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And to uh, Caleb's question that he put to us here of what encourages us here, well, if Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, Jesus endured mistreatment. I think Brittany was the one that pointed out this whole list of instruction in 1 Peter 3 and the whole concept of subjection. The problem is this is unfair. I don't like this injustice. That's all of us have that inside. And that's we respond in different ways, perhaps, to that, or at least we're tempted to. Well, of course, Jesus is the one who went through the greatest injustice because of his subjection and actually purposely subjected himself to that injustice. And yet he was entrusted. He wasn't just doing it uh, aimlessly. He was entrusting himself to the Father, who he knew would execute justice in the end. And the promise to us, 1 Peter 3, verse 12, is that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to our prayer. Boy, what's more encouraging than that? That the Lord is on our side. And so we don't have anything to fear. We don't have anything to worry about because we're just following after Jesus. Now, I want to point out one other thing. I didn't highlight this. So I'm just going to say it right here before we go away from this, and I'll open it back up if y'all want to add on to this concept of how really our subjection and submission is just a way of imitating Christ. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. All right? That's, in other words, the calling in 1 Peter 2.21 is suffering. But y'all look at the calling in chapter 3 and verse 9. What's the calling in 1 Peter 3 and verse 9? 1 Peter 2.21, the calling is suffering like Jesus. But in 1 Peter 3 and verse 9, what does he say is the calling that we have? Bless. Blessing. Blessing. For who? Um, but on the contrary, bless for this, this you will call that you may obtain a blessing. Blessing other people. It is blessing other people. We need to bless others, but also look at the end of verse 9, guys. Who else is getting a blessing here? We ourselves will get yeah. blessed we will be blessed. So what Peter's been trying to convince us of over the past, you know, a couple of weeks for us, several paragraphs in the letter is, hey man, I know this subjection stuff is hard. I know it's suffering, but y'all remember what happened to Jesus, right? He went through all that stuff and he's sitting at the right hand of God on the throne on high. What do you think is going to happen with you? If you would be willing to subject yourself to God's will and even to others who, by the way, don't deserve it. But then again, neither did Pilate or Caiaphas or the crowds or Judas or anybody else. But Jesus subjected himself and won the ultimate victory. He gained blessing from God, and so will we. Caleb pointed out in Psalm 34, this passage that Peter's using to tell us how we need to live is a prophecy about Jesus. I mean, it is an exhortation for our character, but it's also a prophecy about what Jesus went through. I love that, and I think that gives us a lot more clarity whenever we're, we're wanting to not be subject or not cultivate these kinds of characteristics, uh, it gives us motivation. It gives us hope in the midst of our subjection that really can feel a little hopeless and kind of stupid sometimes. I mean, you just feel like, what am I doing? Why am I putting up with this? Why am I just being a little sheep? Well, you're being a sheep because Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And so we're doing the same thing, not because we're weak or we're foolish, 
because we trust in the Lord, just like Jesus did. All right, the, there's my TED Talk for tonight. What do y'all want to say about all that before we move on? Uh, Caleb, go. Yeah, well, amen to that. I think that's just so critical. Everything you just said is really, really critical to understanding this text. And you guys as a class have done a really good job of kind of picking up on that in the last couple of classes. Um, you guys picked up on the fact that really all those instructions he gave the servants were basically just be like Jesus. And all those instructions he gave the wives were basically just submit like Jesus submitted. Um, but what I love about this is in these verses, he basically clarifies, hey, it's not just for servants and wives. Like this, this calling is given to each one of us. The other thought that I had related to the end there is in some senses, you know, Jesus didn't have to do all that in order to, uh, to be saved. Like, I mean, he was already in with the Father in heaven. There's a sense in which we get a double blessing in that through following in his footsteps, we save not only ourselves, but we also get to participate in his work of bringing about salvation to others as well. And so when you're getting blasted on the subway by somebody unfairly, you're not just suffering so that, well, I can't say anything bad or I'll go to hell. No, I'm suffering because I'm joining Jesus in the work of suffering for the sake of others. Because I know that if I handle myself in a godly way, then who knows, maybe some people as a result of that will come to say, why didn't you, you know, stand up and fight? Why didn't you punch that guy in the face? Why didn't you curse him out? You know, um, and I get an opportunity to, to give a reason for that hope that's in me. Love that. And actually what you said, you uh, key to know, I forgot to highlight this in the text, but also remember it says that Jesus went through his suffering so that we would be healed. And as, as Mark pointed out a second ago, our calling is that we would bless, just like uh, Kayla was saying there. And that goes back to what we've been talking about. The mission we have as exiles isn't just that we're out here floating around, just waiting for Jesus to come bring us home. We are waiting on that. But along the way, we're trying to bless. We're trying to restore. We're trying to heal. We're trying to save just like our Lord and Savior. All right. I want us to move on and get verses 13 to 17, but let me open it up. What thoughts, comments, observations, questions, uh, just thoughts you guys wanted to share from verses 8 through 12 before we read the rest of our text for tonight? When we're told not to revile back, but to bless, um, it reminds me, I think, of a Sermon on the Mount where I think he, he says something similar. Um, and, or, you know, or if you, someone takes your coat to pray for, pray for uh, the people who mock you. Um, with that, one of the things it does for me, and I think it, does, it can do for, a lot, for anyone really, is when you know, let's use that same person on the, on the subway, and you're just, you know, like, wow, that person is so cruel, and you can't get to wait to get away. Maybe you don't say anything, and you feel good about that. But if then later when you're home, you're thinking to bless them, you know, that can be really hard at first. You'd be like, all right, I'm blessing. Like, what am I, how am I blessing them? You know, what? And, you know, I think you end up going through it and then you start realizing all the things that Jesus taught us. Well, I have to forgive him. Um, number one, I want to bless him because um, he's, he's acting terribly and I don't want him to do this to other people. And there's, there's some, there's, there's something inside of him, you know, Satan more or less, I guess, that's causing him these problems where he's lashing out at people. And so it's, when you start to think because of the commandment, you put yourself in a position where you have to start to think of blessing someone, forgiving them. You start empathizing with them and thinking what can be their problem? You know, why have they you know, done that? And you've ha you have much more of a, a loving spirit towards people who do terrible things. Um, 
so that's one of the great things I've got from having to do that. You know, the, the times I've remembered. <laughs> right. That's our key. Yeah. Mike and Candace. I think piggybacking off what Brian said, you know, when he said bless them, I guess we can ask ourselves, okay, but how do I, how do I bless them, right? Especially in that moment. Um, I guess I was in, I don't know why this always happens to me. Maybe I need to be trained more. <laughs> but I was in Walmart this week and a guy started to like act up because he wanted to get in the line in front of me. So I just said to him, you know, go ahead, I'll make space for you. Like he, he was quarreling. And I said, just go ahead, I'll make space for you. But like I left it. So I didn't quarrel back with him. But then I left it saying, well, okay, what does, what does God call me to, to do for him? And so I, I kind of remembered and I, it made me, what Brian just said made me think about this, that, you know, we are called to pray for our enemies. So I was kind of linking back, isn't praying for somebody maybe one of the best ways to bless them? You know, um, so I just, I don't know, I just made the connection as, as we're having this discussion. Yeah, I'm going to put this in the chat also, but really um, Matthew 5, 38 through 48, which was, I think was what Brian was referring to in the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, Candace, you're referring to that. That's where Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies. Very similar text there, um, similar kinds of expectations. All right, excellent. Any other uh, thoughts or comments here before we move on? Ch very challenging here to do this stuff, I think. Let me add one more thing, or, or two thoughts. Uh, one of them we're going to leave behind. The other one's going to lead us into our next part of the text. Um, we, may, we may do all this stuff, and we may not see that it's making much of a difference in somebody's life at all. That's not the condition. The condition isn't do this stuff as long as your blessing pays off and it makes the person repent. There's no condition to any of those things. It's just do it. And once again, it's such a wonderful thing. It's a horrifying and tragic thing in some ways, but it's a wonderful thing. We have the model of Jesus. You remember how it went for him. It wasn't like there at the foot of the cross, people were just pricked to their heart and convicted and changed. Even his disciples abandoned him. When you looked in the suffering of Jesus, or may I say this way, when you look at the subjection and submission of Jesus in his rejection, his betrayal, his uh, trials, his death on the cross, it looked totally futile and foolish. That's how we're going to look too. But we know the long-term benefit and we know the impact that Jesus' subjection made in the end that I'll say God used to make something out of. We've got to trust that God will do the same with us and, uh, and not let the results or lack thereof of our subjection um, stop us. We can't let the unfairness of it stop us from being subject. Uh, Jesus was unfairly treated. We're going to as well. And we can't let the, the lack of results stop us from doing this stuff. Just do it regardless of the other person's response. Wives, be subject to your husbands, and perhaps they'll be won over. Not, and if they are, keep on being said, no, no, just do it, and perhaps they'll be won over. That's what we do, right? Okay, but here's the thing. It's scary to subject yourself, especially to evil people. What's going to happen to me out here? How am I going to be treated? Verses 13 to 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. 
For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. I just want to first observe with you that the key word throughout this text, and this reaches back into verses 8 through 12, is good. Did you notice that? Verse 13, who's there to harm you if you prove us for what is good? It's a slightly different word, same concept, though. Verse 14, suffering for righteousness, or we might say doing good, goodness. Um, verse 16 speaks about having a good conscience so that those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And then it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And, of course, all this ties back into um, verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. So all this stuff about subjection, this is true goodness. This is God's stuff. This is the divine. The things that we look at from chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 12, that we look at, and we frankly want to give ourselves a lot of outs, a lot of passes. God says, look, this is the good stuff, y'all. you got to do this. But what do you see in verses 13 through 17 that Peter um, says to urge us on, to keep on going, to do good, to do the kind of good we've been talking about tonight and the past couple of weeks? What do you like in verses 13 through 17? Uh, if you could, let's set aside verse 15. I want us to close with that here in a few minutes. We'll, we'll talk about that for a few minutes. But uh, what do you see in verses 13 through 17 besides verse 15? What do you see that helps urge you on to do the good of following after Jesus and subjecting yourself to others, most of all to God? Although we may suffer, we will be blessed in the end. So, Yeah. Look to the end. Don't look in how you feel right now or what's going on right now. Look to the end. Love that evidence. Keep going, guys. What else does Peter say to exhort us to keep on doing the good of living a life of subjection? Mark. There's another affirmation in the verse 13. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. It's not going to turn out bad for you, you know? It may seem like it, Ramey. Uh, not to fear anything. Not to fear threats, not to fear anything. Don't be afraid. Yeah, which is why we don't like to subject ourselves. You know, <laughs> and I need, I, need to do I need to clap back at you because I'm afraid, you know, or whatever. Uh, just referring back, please go back and, uh, and track back on Caleb's sermon um, this morning that spoke to that, right? That really there's only one we should fear, and that's God. Everything else, there's no point. Here, there's a little allusion to Isaiah chapter 8, where I think Caleb read that this morning in the sermon, where the Lord says, hey, don't fear the things they're afraid of. Don't, they may be fearsome. Don't be afraid of them. There's nothing to be scared of. Mark. Oh, no, I didn't have any. Okay, great, great. Thank Brian, you. Oh, um, it again reminds me of Sermon on the Mount, because here, you know, we're, it's great, because it's great to know that, we're going to be blessed. So the times that we do, um, you know, not revile and take maybe some abuse, that's a, that, that's a blessing. But then, you know, it also reminds uh, me of the Sermon on the Mount where he says to rejoice when we're persecuted because so, you know, so persecuted the prophets before you um, and count it all joy when uh, they persecute you for Jesus's sake. Um, so this is, I think, a, kind of like a rep, a, or, a different version of that where you're doing good because you're a Christian, but if you're suffering because of it, you know, you should not only just look forward to joy, but you should rejoice if you're being, if you're suffering for doing good, because you know um, that, you know, that's, that's what we're supposed to do. And that's what God likes. For sure. For sure. How about a couple other thoughts? You know, um, 
this is one of the many places I think uh, weeks back when we started this, Caleb pointed out that a lot of the suffering in first Peter is suffering of how people talk about us. Um, I want you to look, I want to come, I think Ruth had something, so I want to come to Ruth now before, but y'all think about this question, unless Ruth's going to talk about it anyways, which she may nail it. But uh, what does this passage say to us about how people talk about us and how we should think about that whenever we live a life of subjection? Ruth, what, what do you got though? Yeah, I was going to say that we are like ambassadors for Christ and that we represent him so that, you know, if we um, aren't righteous in our behavior, they're going to say something about who Christ is. There you go. There you go. And, and I might add, if we're not willing to be subject in our behavior, then that ain't going to make sense. We're telling people, oh, you should love Jesus and follow Jesus and trust Jesus. And they're like, well, why do you keep on reviling folks and whatnot? Like, I thought you were a follower of Jesus. You're like, oh, I am. I just don't do all the stuff Jesus did. You're like, well, I guess he's not that good if you ain't following him, you know? And by the way, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm about to go off tangent. Let me stop. Uh, what does this say, though, about the way people talk about us? What's going to happen to them? What does this text promise will happen to those who would revile us or put us down and cause us to fear, maybe fear exclusion or fear just being, you know, I don't know, losing friends and family and all this kinds of, what does this text tell us will happen to those who will revile us if we continue to do good, living like Christ? They're going to be, be ashamed. ashamed. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I said they'll be ashamed. You may feel ashamed right now when people mock you for how stupid you act in society or in your marriage or at work or, you know, with your friends and family and just why you let people walk all over you and why are you always so nice to people that are jerks to you and why didn't you cuss that guy out? That's just crazy. That doesn't work. Well, look, they're going to be put to shame one way or the other. And I don't think that means like, ha ha, I'm right, you're wrong. I think actually our hope is that that shame would draw them to turn to God. That's the whole point. We want them to glorify God. It's not, I'm right, you're wrong. It's that we're trying to point to something better and actually their worldly thinking will be uh, uh, excised from, from their uh, thoughts and such. Adamo, you got something over there? Okay. Um, what was the other thing I wanted to ask about? Oh yeah, yeah. And I think somebody referred to this earlier, but here's one more thing before we talk briefly about verse 15. Whose idea is it? Or maybe I should say, whose idea might it be that I'm going through suffering? What does this text tell you about uh, whose idea or whose will it might actually be that I go through some suffering? God's, no? Yeah. Here's the thing. Whenever we go through the difficulties of being subject to each other as brethren, and I thought, man, that's not fair. I kind of got the raw end of the deal in that like, social outing or this thing going on in the church or whatever or you know, in your marriage, like, man, this isn't really going exactly like I'd like it. And it's not very, it's just not very nice. And I don't enjoy it very much. And I don't know that I'm getting fair treatment always and, or, or at work or in society or whatever it may be. Our instant thought is that person has a will against me and I need to balance the scales here. You know, Peter's saying, listen, man, what if God has actually kind of put you in this situation and wants you to suffer by yourself, just like he did with Jesus. That doesn't mean it's right what's happening with you. It wasn't right what happened with Jesus, but it was God's will that, that happened with Jesus. And there was good that was produced because of that subjection and that difficulty that Jesus endured. So go through the same thing. Entrusting yourself to the one who you know in the end will judge justly. So you don't have to be afraid of those people who are going to mistreat you because you fear the one who rules over all. 
and they're not, so they can't touch you. They can't touch us. They can't do anything about us. That's the beauty and promise that we have here. That's what motivates us to not only embody all the characteristics we've had, but also in our interactions with people, do it with a good conscience. I did right. Like, you're beating me up here. I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to fight back. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to do anything. I'm doing right. I've got a good conscience. And also, I'm not going to be harsh toward you, though you're harsh toward me. And frankly, my life is kind of harsh following after Jesus. But I'm going to conduct myself with meekness, with gentleness. Because... Christ is the one who rules my heart. That's verse 15. We're going to touch on this a little bit tonight, and then we're going to talk about it more. So I'm just going to say a couple things, and, uh, and I'd like everybody to reflect on this. And I want us to just start with verse 15 next week as well, Lord willing, um, uh, to kind of keep ourselves going here. But the thing that will keep us following after Christ, the thing that will keep us devoted to the good life of subjection, the thing that will allow us to endure suffering, the thing that will remove all fears from our lives, from our hearts, from our minds, is if we do verse 15. Put Christ as the only Lord of your heart. That's what that phrase means. Make Christ, regard Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, let him be the only one who rules over your thoughts, your behaviors, your emotions, your actions. He's the only Lord. He's the only master because he doesn't say Christ, the Lord. He says Christ as Lord. In other words, Christ as your master. He's the one that dictates your heart and your emotions and your thoughts. Always being prepared to make a defense or to give an answer to someone who says, why are you acting like this? Why are you so weird? And why are you wasting your life? Why are you letting these things happen in your life that are so bad? Why are you so kind when nobody else is? Why do you act like this, man? It doesn't make any sense. Well, I know. It doesn't make any sense at all in, in this world. But see, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Actually, I say believe, but maybe the word you would want to use is I know that Christ rose from the dead. And he's the Lord of all. And I've bowed my heart before him, and I've given him total control of my life. And since I believe that he defeated sin and death through his subjection, then I'm going to live the same way. And if you want to know why I believe he rose from the dead, I'd be happy to explain it to you and give a defense, give a reason for the hope that's within me. See, my hope is not in this world. My hope is not in uh, everybody treating me nice. My hope is not in having a bunch of money. My hope is not in asserting my independence my hopes aren't in those things. My hope is the resurrection from the dead, that I've got an inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled, reserved in heaven for me, because I'm born again in Jesus Christ. And by God's mercy, I'm going home to see him again. So really, my whole life here, I'm just getting ready to go home. That's what it's all about. And I'd love for you to come too, because the great thing about my father is he's always adding more people to the family. Anybody can come. So why don't you let Christ be your Lord too? That's what we're about. That's why we live this life. It's so that people will wonder what's going on and we have the blessed opportunity to let them know what it's all about. All right, thoughts, comments. Y'all may want to add on, especially about verse 15, but just about the, the, this whole text in general. Uh, what do you guys want to say? This is awesome. So many good observations, personal stuff, really good, I think, uh, constructive suggestions and uh, maybe confessions we've done a little bit tonight and that's good for us so uh, anybody wants to add on for the last couple minutes before we wrap it up all right this is beautiful
Thanks, everybody. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to uh, pick up in verse 18 in particular. Like I said, we'll probably think about verse 15. Think about this whole context. Uh, there's a little bit of a shift that's going to start happening in this part of the text, away from subjection into some other things. Um, but, but think particularly about verse 15, and please do do the reading. Verses, read verse 18 through chapter 4 and verse 6. Caleb will be sending out the, uh, the questions for reflection and study and such. So please utilize those um, in your reading so that we'll be able to come back next week and have another good discussion, Lord willing. Ben, can I make a comment? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, uh, the, um, I'm always thinking about <clears throat> the difficulty um, in sharing um, the, the word with others um, or when you hear something, you know, trying to quote unquote correct them or, or sh somehow talk to them about the Lord. And I think this passage helps because it does, it says not only to, uh, uh, let me see here. I don't want to misquote it. Um, be always be prepared to make a defense. That that's great. First of all, because you're, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like you get, have a few different paragraphs. Okay. How am I going to talk about if someone asks me about this or asking about that? So you can walk around and, and having a defense, um, for Christ and why you believe what you believe. So that can be hard if you're caught off guard and you just start saying, oh, well, you know, I, I'm, I've been doing well. <laughs> but I like the part where it says, um, anyone who asks you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Yep. Because I think sometimes we think of like the conflict of talking to someone in the world that they're going to be like, oh, you know, it's so stupid, you know. But, you know, like Jesus said, you know, answer with a, a soft answer turns away wrath. You know, yeah. if we if we say you, we don't have to we don't have to confront their sin. You know, I think I talked about with you and Caleb this. You know, you can kind of ease into it. You can kind of be like, if they're living a certain way, you can kind of wait till maybe they you know they ask about you and you say, yeah, you know, I used to I used to live like that. You know, I used to do a lot of things you're doing. You know, worry. Um, you know, drinking once in a while. And how's how do you think that's working for you? You know you kind of ease into it with the respect for the person because we used to be that person, you know, regardless of if we grew up in the church or not. Um, so that really helps because it, it doesn't in your mind, you, you can a lot of times think, Oh, it's so hard because it's going to be this conflict. It doesn't have to be a conflict. It can just be a conversation. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, you bring out a good point. And a lot of times people will, uh, make a similar point to what you said that, Hey, this passage kind of teaches about our general evangelism. I do want to highlight not, and this isn't necessarily, I don't think you were contradicting this, but I do think it's important to highlight. Um, sometimes people read this and they feel like pressure. Like, Ooh, I got to have a bunch of answers for a bunch of stuff. And I got to yeah. be really skilled to know how to answer every issue and you yep. know, apologetics and theology and uh, morality and all this kind of stuff. All this passage says is you be ready to explain the hope that you have in you. So it's not, hey, you got to know all the answers to all the questions, be ready for every debate topic. Actually, that's not at all the point here. The point is you live in such a way that people would question, what's going on with you? Why are you this way? And you just be ready to tell them why you have a hope beyond this world in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, if we would all figure that out, if we figure out how to live in such a way that people would ask some questions, and then secondly, if we just figure out that one answer, why do you have hope? What's going on with the hope inside of you? If we figure out that answer, we're good.
we're good. We're not gonna be able to answer every question. We're not, and, and by the way, I think it's good for us to try to know how to answer a variety of questions and issues that arise. I'm not saying it's, that's a bad thing at all. Brian, you just pointed out some good stuff about how we can think about how to be respectful and genteel and stuff. But really all this is talking about is live in such a way that raises questions. And then you have one answer. Why do you have that hope inside of you? What's the reason for it? And that's all we got to do is give people the reason for the hope we have in the resurrection of Christ. And boom, that's it. The aim of The Way BK is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ across Brooklyn and beyond. For more information or to contact us, please visit www.thewaybk.com.